You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 22nd of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Ahead on today's programme... While this campaign has ended, the mission continues. Down here in Florida, we will continue to show the country how to lead. It's the end of the presidential dream for Ron DeSantis. We'll get the lowdown from Washington. We'll be in India, where the inauguration of a Hindu temple by the prime minister is provoking accusations of weaponized religion. In Liberia, its youngest president ever gives way to its oldest. We'll hear more about the new administration and the challenges facing this West African nation. And... A fusion of of Afro-Asian cultural expression is something that the world is just waiting to see. And Dolly Kola Balagoon tells us about her mission to promote the works of African artists. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. We begin the show in the United States, where Ron DeSantis has pulled out of the Republican presidential race. Let's hear it from the man himself. I am today suspending my campaign. I'm proud to have delivered on 100% of my promises, and I will not stop now. It's clear to me that a majority of Republican primary voters want to give Donald Trump another chance. They watch his presidency get stymied by relentless resistance, and they see Democrats using lawfare this day to attack him. Well, I've had disagreements with Donald Trump, such as on the coronavirus pandemic and his elevation of Anthony Fauci. Trump is superior to the current incumbent, Joe Biden. That is clear. I signed a pledge to support the Republican nominee, and I will honor that pledge. He has my endorsement because we can't go back to the old Republican guard of yesteryear, a repackaged form of warmed-over corporatism that Nikki Haley represents. Well, listening to that was Washington-based reporter Simon Marks, who's on the line. Simon, DeSantis' campaign has finally hit the buffers, but it didn't start well either. Can you talk us through his bid to be the nominee? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it hit the buffers, in fact, quite a while ago, but DeSantis is finally recognising, publicly at least, that it has hit the buffers and that it was time uh, to call it quits. When Ron DeSantis initially dipped his toes into presidential waters, Republicans were certainly interested in him. Uh, He had, of course, led this anti-woke crusade in Florida uh, that he was proposing to go national with, uh, and many observers thought it was possible that he was going to be able to build a national presidential campaign based on many of those achievements and the ideological approach that he had taken uh, down in the Sunshine State. But the minute he started campaigning, the minute he actually started connecting with voters outside Florida, Florida, the more apparent it became that he simply didn't have the personality that was going to draw people uh, into his orbit. And it didn't take long before Donald Trump was relentlessly attacking him, constantly calling uh, Ron DeSantis by the nickname Ron DeSanctimonious. I mean, he has been on the receiving end of a withering assault by the Trump campaign uh, in its now successful bid to neutralise him. But there's no question that Ron DeSantis aided that bid because when Republicans in places like Iowa and New Hampshire took a close-up look at him, they just didn't warm 
to him, and indeed I think it's fair to say that he appeared more relaxed and happier in that appearance on video yesterday when he terminated his presidential campaign than he had seemed at any time on the campaign trail itself. Now, during that speech, he hardly gave a ringing endorsement uh, to Trump. I mean, the two have had a very adversarial relationship. He talked about lawfare, and I wonder why Trump's opponents for the nomination don't lean more into his troubles with the law. I mean, they could be asking potential voters, why would they want to to give their vote to a criminal? But that seems to be largely ignored. Yeah, absolutely. Largely ignored, except by people like the former presidential aspirant Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, who did relentlessly go after Donald Trump. But people like Ron DeSantis uh, and Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, who of course now remains in the race, have faced this, uh, what they viewed as, very, very difficult conundrum. Donald Trump's dominance in the field nationally, his dominance within the Republican Party is so great that they needed to try try and thread the needle and find a way of peeling votes away from Donald Trump without dramatically offending Donald Trump's core constituency. Because whoever wins the Republican Party's presidential nomination ultimately is going to have to come to terms with Donald Trump's core constituency because you cannot possibly win the presidency without their support. And that led Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley both uh, to hold back considerably in terms of trying to to protect their ultimate viability with Trump's base when many strategists would have argued you really needed to go much heavier against Trump in the first place. Mm. What are the latest polling figures showing? Has Nikki Haley picked up of any of DeSantis's voters? I have to say it's pretty grim for Nikki Haley as we are entering the eve of the New Hampshire primary. If anything, uh, over the last two or three days, Donald Trump has uh, added to his lead against her in the poll of polls that is uh, published by the political website 538. Trump goes into this primary contest with 49.8% of the vote. Uh, Nikki Haley, 36.1%. Now, Ron DeSantis had about 6% of the vote, but we can assume that most of those supporters are either going to stay home or hew to Donald Trump as Ron DeSantis has indicated that they should. So Nikki Haley finds herself on the eve of a drubbing in New Hampshire and she's going to have to make a very big decision when she places second behind Donald Trump in the Granite State because the next date in the diary that she faces if she stays in the contest will be in her home state of South Carolina where Donald Trump currently enjoys a more than 40 percentage point lead over her and most observers think it is unlikely that she will want to end her presidential career with a drubbing in her own home state. And how would you characterise the differences between New Hampshire and Iowa? The, The demographic is slightly different. Uh, Yes, it is. I mean, uh, New Hampshire is uh, traditionally considered uh, a friendlier state uh, for less purist conservative candidates, which is why Nikki uh, Haley, after she placed third in Iowa, even then was saying, well, it's a two horse race now and was confident that New Hampshire, she 
claimed she was confident uh, that New Hampshire was going to turn things around uh, for her. Uh, the Trump campaign relentlessly has turned its firepower on her in the days since Iowa. Uh, former President Donald Trump hitting her uh, with uh, an assault uh, of campaign advertisements with a relentless email attack branding her as a globalist, a woman who's going to raise your taxes, uh, something that people in New Hampshire, where the state motto is live free or die, very much oppose. Uh, someone who represents, as Ron DeSantis was saying in that farewell video, corporatist globalism uh, of the old guard, as he characterised it. Uh, there's no indication that Nikki Haley in the hours ahead is going to be able to overturn the deficit that she faces in New Hampshire, and it may well be that her political obituary, at least as far as this presidential cycle uh, is concerned, gets uh, etched in granite in the granite state. Simon, thank you very much indeed. That was Simon Marks in Washington. Now here's Isabella Jewell with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. Health officials in Gaza say the death toll from Israel's offensive in the Strip has topped 25,000. Israeli forces and Hamas fighters are engaged in street fighting across the Palestinian territory as Israel ramps up airstrikes on Khan Yunis in the south. Over the weekend, Israel rejected conditions presented by Hamas to end the war and released hostages. Airlines cancelled more than 100 flights in and out of Dublin Airport on Sunday as Storm Aisha brought strong winds to Ireland and the UK. The storm also forced dozens of aborted landings and diversions to other airports. Amsterdam's Schiphol airports cancelled 130 flights scheduled for Monday because of strong winds expected when Aisha reaches the Netherlands. Australia has ended its golden visa, which allows wealthy foreign investors to stay in the country. The scheme will be replaced with more skilled worker visas as part of a wider immigration overhaul. Officials say the plans will bring new arrivals down to pre-pandemic levels. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Thank you, Isabella. In India, Prime Minister Narendra Modi has inaugurated a large Hindu temple dedicated to Lord Ram. This has been celebrated by millions of Hindus across the country, but for the country's minority Muslim population, it's a painful reminder of religious divisions that have grown more pronounced under Modi's rule. Our New Delhi correspondent, Lindy Prickett, can tell us more. Uh, Lindy, thanks for joining the show. This is a very controversial project in India, and part of that is to do with the site on which the temple is being built. Can you tell us more? Oh, yes. It is a, a very hotly contested site because it's considered by devout Hindus, the religious part of Hinduism, to be the site where Rama, who is considered the incarnation of Vishnu, which is one of the main gods in Hinduism, a Hindu deity, it's considered to be the site where Rama was, where Ram was born. And what happened is, as we know, India's history is very checkered with many different people coming in and, and claiming their stake on it. Well, in the 16th century, it was the Mughal Emperor Babur who came in and was ruling that part of India. This is in the state of Uttar Pradesh, by the way, in the city of Ayodhya. And what happened is they it's claimed that there was um, this revered uh, Hindu temple there that was raised to the ground and instead a mosque was put there. 
Now, this mosque wasn't considered the most uh, special mosque uh, in, in the area. In fact, many people um, say that it wasn't even a regular place where uh, uh, prayers used to happen. But nonetheless, it is a contentious spot. Of course, when any one ruling party or, or, or army comes in and, and takes down a place, it is obviously going to have wounds that go deep. They bubbled up for centuries. In fact, it's even on record that the British uh, uh, came in and um, had the two sides were arguing over this space, and the British even went on record as to say, um, this is this is a, a problem, and they blocked off part of the, the courtyard for the mosque so that they could prevent people from um, having uh, riots and, and, and uh, skirmish, skirmishes there. Uh, and then we have partition. Partition came. India was divided into uh, different countries, India, Pakistan, and at, at the time, um, East Pakistan, which is Bangladesh now. And this became an ulcer that just wouldn't go away. And then the story goes that magically in 1949, a few years after India's uh, modern creation, what happened? But some gods, some idols of the god Ram uh, appeared on the site. And boom, before you know it, that was it. Uh, the Muslims that were um, looking after the mosque came in, shut the place down and, and barricaded it off and said, nope, we're not letting anybody come in. And since then, it has been hotly contested in the courts. And then rather dramatically, it was torn down in the late 80s by a group of uh, people, many of whom have are apologized, the politicians who led that. But nonetheless, it unleashed a nasty, nasty division between Hindus and Muslims in India. And it, it has been basically in the court for years and years. And uh, just recently, they were allowed, the, the Hindu party were, uh, the Hindu um claimants in the court were allowed to build a new temple on that site that was um, so savagely torn down. So the construction of the temple is a central promise of Modi's Hindu nationalist BJP party. And as we know, elections are coming up. Some commentators say that this consecration of the temple feels like the, the launch of Modi's re-election campaign. He's been accused of weaponizing religion. Can you unpick that for us? I mean, I think in, in, in India, everything is, is on a complicated level, that religion plays a big part of what happens. But a lot of people say, look, Hinduism isn't even a religion. It's not even a philosophy. It's a way of life. And there are a lot of pundits, a lot of um, uh, intellectuals who are debating whether or not Modi is forwarding this. And in fact, many people take umbrage of the of, of of him even being called a right wing nationalist. Um, and uh, they they defend his right to project Hinduism as a way of life that is by nature of the definition of Hinduism is by nature a secular outlook, an outlook that allows anyone into the fold. So the the debate, as always, comes down to definitions and the two sides just don't see eye to eye. Nonetheless, as you said, it's an election uh, coming up. Uh, the People will go to the polls in, in a few months with results coming out in May. And this is a hot topic because there are many people who feel as though for years and years they've been ashamed to uh, um, um, sort of embrace their Hinduism or their Hinduness and that Modi's 
he's given them the acceptability to greet people by a, a Hindu greeting, Ram Ram, which is a, a common greeting that has become a sort of toxic greeting in many circles and seen as a very um, exclusionist way of approaching it. But it's a, it's a country that likes to debate and the debate goes on and on with many people split as to whether or not this is really a, a, a hot topic at all or whether we just accept that Hinduism is a part of India and move on with it. But we'll find out in the polls because of uh, uh, the Congress and the um, alliance, the India alliance in which Congress is part of, are absolutely not for this. They have, however, it's worth saying, they are supporting the temple. They have enough of a Hindu vote bank to to have to do that, but they haven't necessarily supported the pageantry that's gone into the temple today with none other than Mr. Modi at the forefront. Mm. How much does the temple cost and who's funding it? Oh, yes. Well, uh, in, in rupees, it's what we call 1,800 crore rupees, but um, that would be uh, $22 million. And it's really been funded. So so everybody's reporting that it's been funded by contributions um, from ordinary citizens and donors and people who feel that this will be the new, the new Vatican. It could be a way for uh, India to have a, a, a place, a point at which to celebrate its Hindu culture and to bring people in. And already there's a whole tourism industry, as you can imagine, that has been behind this and is already growing. Roads are being built and hotels are coming up. And it's uh, amazing how it's already uh, funded this uh, part of, uh, of India's tourism culture, which it doesn't really have. It hasn't really ever celebrated its, its sort of one point of Hinduism like that. Mm. And finally, Lindy, how has this been covered in the Indian media? Oh, okay. So, um, well, like like many countries, uh, India is very divided. With with there are a lot of people uh, on on one uh, le the left side, sort of saying this is um, this is too much. Uh, this is too much of uh, pageantry. With the BJP taking this this credit. But interestingly, as I say, a lot of people are still celebrating the fact that the temple has been built and they're celebrating this as a part of, of India's pitch into the, the new century as a, as a superpower. And even places that have been predominantly um, frequented by the quote-unquote liberal left, uh, marketplaces, in fact, it's called something quite um, cute in New Delhi, it's a market called Khan Market, and it's the Khan Market consensus, uh, the, the, the liberal left in this country are often called, even con market right now is covered in orange, bright orange flags heralding um, the Ram Mandir being built. So the media are also celebrating, the, pa the papers are full of it. It's the editorials where you go in and you can find the criticism um, subtly sort of um, painted there, uh, not subtly, in pretty harsh words. There are a lot of harsh words at the moment, but there's also a lot of praise as well. Lindy, thank you very much indeed. That's Lindy Prickett in New Delhi. This is The Briefing on Monocle Radio. <laughs> You're back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio. To Liberia now, where 79-year-old Joseph Wakai is to be sworn in as the country's oldest ever president. He's a man with a long political history in the country, but only just scraped to win in November's runoff election. Well, Desmond Davies is the editor of Africa Briefing magazine and joins me on the line now. Desmond, many thanks for coming on The Briefing. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about Wakai's background and history. 
Well, actually, I mean, he's been in politics for quite a long time. He was vice president under Mrs. Johnson for 12 years. So, I mean, that, that that's experience uh, enough for, for, for him to, 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 to make a difference. I mean, he, he struggled in his early life, but I mean, he, he's someone who's determined and he made it to the top as, uh, as, as vice president for 12 years uh, under Mrs. Johnson Sirleaf. And But he lost in the last election uh, in 2017 to, uh, to uh, George Weah himself, because one would have thought that having come from being the vice president, he would have defeated George Weah, but the country wanted a change, and they wanted someone who was very young. In fact, George Weah was the youngest ever president of Liberia. So that's what got George Weah into power rather than uh, Buakai's uh, uh, experience, which should have stood him in good stead. Mm. He's known as Sleepy Joe. Why is he perceived that way? And if people have concerns about his attention span or his age, why did he win the election? Oh, no, I mean, he, his, his uh, advisors have explained to me that he has a problem with his eyes. He's got a very small eye. And the, his eyelids tend to cover his eyes when he's looking down. But, I mean, they say he's very, very sharp and that uh, he'll be able to push things. But the point is, let's face it, he, he didn't get an overwhelming uh, victory. He only won by 20,000 uh, votes. And uh, it was because, in fact, George Weir considered defeat. If he hadn't, like we've seen in other parts of West Africa, would have gone into a stalemate, would have gone to violence, and whatever. So we must commend Judge Ware considering defeat even before the, the final result was announced. I mm. mean, but he only won by, by 20,000 votes. And that really is is, is not uh, a significant uh, number for him to say that he's got overwhelming support. The, the reason why he actually lost, you see, Judge Ware had a problem with his uh, uh, coalition party, the, the National Patriotic Party, which was headed by uh, Mrs. Jewel uh, Taylor, the former president of, uh, the wife of the former president of Liberia. And uh, she was supposed to have stepped down as leader of the party, of the, 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 the NPP, uh, but she stuck, stuck, to, stuck to her guns and she disrupted the party because she wanted to be in power, hopefully, hoping that she'll become president at the next election when Jadwea steps down. So in the process, she split the party right down the middle, and that's why. Judge, we actually lost. If, mm-hmm. if they had had someone, uh, the, the, the rank and file of the C, of the NPP had supported, uh, Judge, might have won, actually. So, Wakai's choice of running mate has been absolutely crucial. What can you tell us about the vice president? Oh, well, um, yeah, he, he's a good guy, actually. He's only 45, and in, in, in six years' time, you will be 51, the age Judge uh, uh, Ware became president. I, I don't think Wakai, <laughs> at 79, will do two terms. I mean, I think he won't be able to do two terms. So Kong actually is a self-made man. Actually, he he, uh, he started off as a street trader and then he became a successful businessman and then a legislator. So he's, he's, he's got youth on his side and he's, 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 he's made money because you see most politicians in Africa, West Africa at least, go into politics to, to line the pockets. But he's already a rich man, so he, he doesn't need to, 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 to do that sort of thing. So he, he will... Uh, do a lot of work. I mean, if uh, that is, if uh, Wakai allows him to do the work, then uh, things will be things will be a lot better for Liberia because he's got the expertise and he's got the uh, the common touch with with young people. Mm. And just briefly before we go, as the new administration takes office, what will be the major challenges? Well, actually, he's still under pressure to set up a, a war crimes commission. You know, Liberia went through 
two sets of uh, civil wars in which 250,000 people were killed. And they have been pushing uh, for uh, war crimes commission, but the point is those who are in authority are the ones themselves who will be, who be, who be, who be tried by the, uh, the war crimes commission. So there's no a determination among the, uh, the the leaders to have a war crimes commission. But the push will continue. And he says that he wants peace and reconciliation, which is very, very important. And uh, we must commend Liberians and George Ware for the fact that uh, he stepped down without any controversy and uh, actually bucked a trend in West Africa where we've had uh, repeated election violence and disputes since uh, the last few years. And even in Sierra Leone, there was an attempted coup in November because of the disputed elections in uh, in, in, in in June. So, I mean, it's, it's a good start that... Uh, there's peace and and, and and tranquility in the country. It now has to deliver jobs for young people who are very, very frustrated. Desmond, thank you very much indeed. That's Desmond Davies there. And this is The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Africa's art market enjoyed major growth in 2023 with works by Ethiopian-born Julie Moretu and British Ghanaian Lynette Yedon Bakai breaking records when they sold for millions in London and New York. Other artists from around the continent held debut shows on both sides of the Atlantic and in Asia. Dolly Kalua Balagun, who is founder of Abuja-based Retro Africa, was riding the wave too. She spent 2023 travelling Asia, promoting works by artists from Nigeria, Kenya, Angola and beyond. Monocle's Lillian Fawcett caught up with Dolly over the weekend at Singapore's Art SG. Lillian asked Dolly why, having been born and grown up in Europe, she wanted to open her gallery in the Nigerian capital. There was a sort of calling and yearning in my heart, I guess. At the time, there was a large returning wave of diasporans that wanted to go back and build something and contribute to society, I guess. And at the time, there was this art fair called 154 uh, that was taking place at Somerset House. And it really just exposed me to what the potential for contemporary African art was, which I, did, I didn't know. I had a lot of preconceived notions of what African art was and looked like. And then I interned for uh, Bissy Silva, who was the curator for the first edition of Ardex Lagos and the rest of history really decided after that to start my own platform called Retro Africa. At the time, no physical space, but we were doing pop-ups. And from there, we sort of grew internationally. And nine years later, here we are. And what are some of those preconceived notions that people might have about Nigerian art or African art? Well, I think the narrative has shifted drastically since the past, what, nine years or so. But I think that there, there was at the time, and there probably still is in some instances, maybe in Asia, which is less familiar with African art than say the Western world, that, you know, African art would have been mainly, you know, tribal, you know, masks, more touristy in terms of the, the sort of art that they, they would encounter. There was less uh, academic, less intellectual, less abstract. It was just an eye opener in terms of what was possible, in terms of scale, in terms of direction, in terms of subject matter, aesthetic. I mean, I think that contemporary African art is really still rising, you know, in terms of global significance. It's at a golden age. There, there's only an uphill sort of potential for it from here. I think that expanding into Asia is a natural next step. I've been making a strong Asia push for the last one year now. I think that we're culturally uh, similar. I think that it's intuitive to sort of create this cultural exchange, even if it may not seem so on the surface. And I'm hoping that there will be a trend 
within the region in the next couple of years. Um, and I know you've worked with Gallery Medina in Mali, right? Is working with galleries in, in Francophone countries something that's important to you? And is there a kind of a, a cultural divide between Anglophone and Francophone African cultures at the moment? It is very important to answer the question. One, I grew up in a French school most of my life, so I'm a bit of an anomaly because I'm a Nigerian, an Anglophone, African, West African who speaks French. And despite the fact that Nigeria is surrounded by French-speaking countries, most Nigerians do not speak French, which does create a very significant trade and cultural exchange barrier in terms of just connectivity, even our, from our news to sort of the, the information we consume are just so segmented that there is limited exchange. I think it's much better now, thanks to fairs like Art X Lagos in, t- in terms of arts, biennials like Dakats, biennials like the Bamako Rencontre, but even still, it's, it's really, it's really limited. So it is very important for me because I see Retro Africa as a sort of bridge between the, content- the, the Anglophone and Francophone creative scenes or art scenes, and I hope to continue to be. And tell me a little bit more about your efforts to promote African art in Asia. How has it been received? What people's initial response? Uh, and are they interested in turn, you know, collectors in Asia, are they interested in turn in traveling to Africa? I think doing more things in Asia started as a sentimental desire. Also a strategic one, but, but I always saw myself doing more in, in this region. I think I have an article from three years ago in Art News in which... They asked me what next for Retro Africa, and I said, I'd like to do something in Seoul. And then I think in the body of a text, it says, I love to show at Art Basel Hong Kong one day. And of course, I showed at Art Basel Hong Kong last year, and now I'm in, in Singapore. So I have sort of narrowed my focus from, from just a desire to just do something in the region to looking at how can we strategically exchange culturally in terms of creative trade. And I think that China is Nigeria's number one trading partner. I think it's a number one trading partner uh, of 40 plus countries in Africa. In terms of trade, we're talking about mainly goods and infrastructure development. Cultural exchange is sort of the next frontier. And I think that African art is becoming a global, globally accepted style and genre. But I think less so in Asia because we're just not present. And I think that in order for people to know you, you need to go and meet them where they are, you know. And so I think that more African galleries showing in art fairs, gallery exhibitions in the region will really open the gateway for, for all sorts of immense possibilities. And I think that the fusion of, of Afro-Asian cultural expression is something that the world is just waiting to see. I think the fusion of the two in an innovative never before seen fashion would really you know set the world on fire so I, i'm looking forward to, to doing more i'm looking forward to to it becoming a trend and for the next time i do a fair to not just be one out of two uh, but to have a good percentage eventually of galleries seeing asia as as a must you kind of touched on it there but i'll ask you again that question you know where where would you like retro africa to be in in three years more art fairs across asia or do you have your eyes somewhere else I would like to be more established in Asia generally within the next three years for sure. I don't know how, in what capacity. I'm still learning. The one thing is I've learned is to not over-predict. But I know know I want to do more here and I want to find a way to sort of consolidate on what I'm learning. And then, of course, do more in the West and Europe and South America as well. And, of course, build institutions locally in Africa uh, because there's really no point making this global play and push if we're not building infrastructure and institutions domestically for others to come to us 
and you know that's that's the end goal. The end goal is to to build wealth, connection, and opportunity, and bring bring that back home as well. And that was Dolly Kalua Balurgan speaking to Lillian Fawcett. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing, which was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Isabella Jewell. Our researcher was Neoma Ekwe and our studio manager was Mariella Bevan. And The Briefing is back at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>